Good morning, City Life. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I have a cold, and I have prayed that the Lord would redeem that into a better preaching voice this morning. And so I hope that I sound older and wiser than I am because of my baritone voice. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. We're going to be in verses 34, 35, and 36 this morning. And uh, I want to preach a sermon titled, This Day in Light of That Day. This Day in Light of That Day. I wonder if you've ever uh, had a day that you should have been prepared for that you were not prepared for. Uh, I had one of those days when I was a freshman at UNL. Uh, I had some friends call me on a Sunday night and say, Gav, do you want to hang out? And I said, seems like I have something tomorrow. And I took inventory of my brain, which takes like 10 seconds, and I couldn't find any reason why I shouldn't go out that night, and so I did, and and we stayed out super late, and I roll in Monday morning to Calculus 2 at 8 a.m., why you sign up for 8 a.m. Calculus on a Monday, Um, you do it once and never again. Um, And anyway, roll in about five minutes late, because if you know me, I rolled in five minutes late. And I rolled in to see my professor handing out the midterm examination and passing it down the rows, and I had completely forgot about it. Fortunately, he still gave me a test when I got there, and I did my best to wing it, but I bombed it. B-O-M-B, bombed it. If I remember right, I think I got a 56%. I'm just trying to make up integrals, derivatives, the whole thing. My T89 is just smoking and frantic and... uh, By the grace of God, everyone bombed it, so I think I got curved up to a B. But needless to say, I did not live Sunday in light of Monday, and I should have. Um, I wonder if you've been there. There are certain days in the future that require preparation in this day, living this day in light of that day. I remember the year I got married. Every day the year prior to that day was in preparation of that day. That's all I thought about. I worked out more in that year than I had ever worked out in my entire life. I had a strict BSN diet. If you don't know what that means, Google it. But I wanted to look good. It's the only time in my life I've ever had, what do you call these things? Abdomens. I haven't seen it since or before, but there was just a little definition. I worked hard for that. I lived every day prior to that in light of that day. And for all of us, there are days in the future that we need to live this day in light of. And for all of us, the one day, the day in the future that we need to spend this day, that day, and every day in light of is the day when Jesus comes back. Sure as anything in the world, Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth. And the passage that we're going to look at today is about the return of Jesus. Um, We're going to look at just verses 34 through 36, but um, it, really, that's the concluding remarks and warning of Jesus that comes at the tail end of a larger section, which is chapter 21, verses 5 through uh, verses 35, wherein Jesus is talking about um, a lot of things, primarily two things. Let me give you in 60, 90 seconds the gist of Luke chapter 21. Here's what he says. Uh, there's the, the, the parable of the widow's might. And then ironically, immediately after that, the disciples are in the temple saying, aren't these stones beautiful? And Jesus says, pretty soon, not one of these stones will remain stacked on another stone in this place. And he goes on to tell uh, the disciples that the temple will be destroyed, um, that there will be wars, there will be persecution, and that the city of Jerusalem would ultimately be destroyed, invaded, and wiped out along with its temple. Now, we know from history that this happened. 
right? History holds that some 37 years later, just as Jesus prophesied this destruction, it came. The Roman army marched in. They surround the city, led by the future emperor Titus. They sack the city. They destroy the temple. And we learn that the bricks of the temple were inlaid with gold. And so the Roman soldiers, to get at the gold, literally unstacked every stone in the temple, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that there would not be one stone left on top of the other. And then... In verse 25, Jesus seamlessly transitions into a later reality. Um, This is classic form of prophecy in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. Oftentimes when you read a prophetic section of Scripture, it looks as though there's there's one event um, that is being prophesied about. Um, But oftentimes there are different events separated by space and time. And so Think of it this way. When you drive up to the Rocky Mountains from the east, say you're going down I-80, when you first see the mountain range, it looks like all the peaks are in a row, doesn't it? It's just a line of mountains until you get into the mountains, and you realize they're separated by miles, dozens of miles, maybe even 50, 80, 100 miles in between peaks. Well, that's the way prophecy works. And so Jesus is describing a near peak, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and then in verse 25, he transitions It seems, as it were, that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is but a foreshadowing of the greater consummate return of Jesus, the judgment of the living and the dead, and and the final punctuation mark on this earth of all that there is. And so he talks about there being a difficult time, and there will be this consummate um, judgment of the world. So it's a pretty heavy, beefy section of Scripture. Luke 21, you could do a series on it. But at the very end of it, Jesus concludes to his disciples with a warning about how we should live in light of the coming end. And it's this conclusion that I want us to talk about, dialogue about, not really dialogue, you're not going to talk, unless you say amen, that would be welcomed and appreciated. Um, But we're going to dive in and and, and look at the consummate ending of all things and how we are to live in light of that. And church, I just want to say, there's a lot at stake for us very practically in this passage. Okay, this is not just a weird eschatological end time sermon where we're going to learn some new fun facts, but I really am praying that God would shape our hearts in light of this passage this morning, because here's what's at stake. I think it's really easy that we, those of us who are Christians, can trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, We can trust in his full and sure pardoning for our sins, and then live our whole lives as functional atheists, not letting that day give any bearing to the way that we live this day. And what I think Jesus is pressing in in our passage this morning is that we need to learn to live this day, each day, and every day in light of that day when we see Jesus face to face. And City Light, I want us to be that church. I want this place to be full of people that are heavenly minded, that organize, build, and structure our lives uh, anticipatory of that day of Jesus' return, that we wouldn't be caught off guard, that we wouldn't give our time, talent, resources, attentions, the things that aren't going to matter in 100 years. And so I, I'm praying that Jesus would teach us kindly through his word this morning how to live this day in light of that day. And so let's get into our verses this morning. You've got a little, a little program with some fill-in-the-blanks, um, and I would encourage you to follow along there as well as in your Bible. And the first lesson I think Jesus is telling us in this passage, which is point one, is to avoid a sleepy heart. First way to live this day in light of that way is to avoid a sleepy heart. Look at verse 34. It says, but watch yourselves. That's a warning. 
But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. He says, watch out, lest your heart become weighed down. That word there for weighed down literally means depressed. It's a depressed heart. It's a sleepy heart. It's a heart that's off guard. So the first thing Jesus gives us is a warning. Careful that you don't have a sleepy heart. And then, very kindly, he's going to give us three ways that, that would drive our hearts to numbness, to sleepiness. Number one, he says, don't let your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. Dissipation. Um, I would summarize dissipation as wild living. In your notes, write down wild living. If you didn't know what dissipation meant, it's okay, neither did I. So that's why we have dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, and Google. Um, dissipation. Uh, it literally means a wasteful consumption of money or resources or the squandering of that which, have, which uh, we've been given to enjoy. It can also refer to an inordinate indulgence of physical pleasures. I'm going to sum it up as wild living. We all know what this looks like, right? This is the prodigal son, the younger son from Luke 15, who gets his inheritance early, heads to the parlor, gets some tattoos, goes to the boats, buys a shot for everyone, right? It's wild living. Um, as we get older, it just matures, but it's still wild living. It's an obsession with the next thing, the next toy, the next party, the next outfit, the next vacation, the next thing. As we get older, it looks like keeping up with the Joneses, right? It's spending money that we don't have to buy things that we can't afford and that we don't need so that we might be in step with the proverbial Joneses. While we're there, can I just talk to you about the Joneses for a second? Let's talk about the Joneses. I've met the Joneses in marital counseling, and they're miserable. Don't be insecure. I'm not talking about anyone in our church. This is the proverbial Joneses, okay? Um, they're miserable, They've got the boat and the house and the toys, and all of it is to numb the emptiness inside of them. And so Mrs. Jones is sneaking vodka into her Diet Cokes at the reception office, and Mr. Jones is addicted to internet poker on his cell phone, okay? You know what the Joneses need? Not our admiration. They need a hug. They need a casserole. Would you go to the Joneses this afternoon past their giant yacht and their fifth wheel, past their 17 garages, and just say, can I give you a hug? Can we just sit down? Can I encourage you? Do you see it? Don't keep up with the Joneses. It's called dissipation. And C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, uh, it's a great book where um, it's, it's written in such a way that you've got kind of a mentor demon who's coaching young demons on how to uh, demonize the people of God and get them off point. And one of the strategies of the kind of sensei teacher demon that he gives to the young people is, is he, the young demons, he says, um, get, get the people of God to enjoy the pleasures that God gives them, but in the wrong quantity and at the wrong time. That's dissipation. Life's pleasures, overindulgence at the wrong time. And let me ask you, are you giving yourself to dissipation? to wild living, to worldly pleasures in excess, Jesus says, pay attention lest your heart become sleepy. When your whole life is about wild living and keeping up with the Joneses, you are not mentally, spiritually, emotionally anticipating and preparing for Jesus's return. It's not living this day in light of that way. First way we get a sleepy heart is wild living. Second way we get a sleepy heart is drunk living. Drunk living. Honey, is he really going to go there? Yeah, I think he is. Oh, man. Drunk living. Well, what does the Bible mean by drunk? The Bible means drunk. Drunk in the Bible means drunk. What Jesus is saying is don't get drunk, don't be drunk, don't live drunk, don't give yourself to drunkenness. Some of you are now thinking, well, how, like, how drunk is drunk? 
if you're asking that, odds are you're getting drunk, okay? If one or two to you means one or two six-packs, you're drunk. And Jesus is saying, don't be drunk. Now, to be clear, the Bible never absolutely prohibits the consumption of alcohol for God's people. In fact, if the disciples didn't drink, why does Jesus not tell them to be drunk? You wouldn't think that would be an issue if they didn't drink alcohol. The Bible gives a lot of freedom in this area. Now, for a lot of Christians, if you choose abstinence and to um, um, abstain completely is a matter of conscience, is a matter of wisdom, is a matter of problems in your family and genetics predisposition, honor God with your conscience. That is absolutely terrific. We celebrate that. We affirm that. But listen, if you choose not to abstain, we need to be very, very, very careful not to mistake a gospel freedom for alcohol consumption with a gospel liberation into drunkenness, which it does not afford us, okay? Uh, Alistair Begg, who in my opinion is one of the best Bible preachers alive today, second to Chris Hureska, um, he says it very well. Uh, Alistair Begg says this, we have to be very, very careful that when we reject a bondage that Scripture does not embrace abstinence, that we do not then embrace a freedom that Scripture does not afford, drunkenness. Alistair Begg. Let me say it again. We have to be very careful that when we reject a bondage that Scripture does not embrace, that we do not then embrace a freedom that Scripture does not afford. Here's what happens. The pendulum never, almost never, rarely swings from one side back into the middle, does it? And so you've got a generation of faithful, godly, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians from a generation ago who just said, we're not touching the stuff, right? And, and, and the side effect of that can be a legalistic bent on it, which says, man, if you, if you don't drink, you're a good Christian. If you do drink, you're a bad Christian at best and not a Christian at worst, right? And so it's this legalistic um, um, layering of self-righteousness. And the generation before my eyes, which I'm seeing, takes the pendulum, and we don't swing back usually to a God-centered view of alcohol. Where does it swing? The gospel says we can get drunk. Our Lord made wine, right? No, 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 no. We have to be very, very careful here. And so I, I want to speak very candidly. I think this is a big, this is in our church. This is in our homes. This is important. And, and, and we don't want to be the legalistic and weird church, but we need to preach the Bible, which says, do not give yourself to drunkenness. And listen to me, especially young people. You need to know, Chris said it well. Chris said, I'm a Christian hedonist, which means I am after my greatest joy, the difference is I have found my greatest joy in Jesus Christ, not in other sinful patterns. Jesus is not calling you out of fun. He's calling you into a greater joy. And alcohol drunkenness in particular has all these promises of a, of a looser social life and more sincere friendships. And uh, the double edge of that is it actually damages, fractures, and destroys the very relationships and winsome character that you're trying to build. And so church, can I just call us out of that? If you're getting drunk, repent. Don't get drunk. You can drink alcohol to the glory of God, but you are not getting drunk to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So the second way, and and I also want to point this out. In this passage in particular, the thrust of Jesus' message is not just a moral, don't drink because it is a sin, uh, though drunkenness is a sin. What he's saying is this. it, It creates in you a sleepy heart. When you're filling your life with alcohol, when you're perpetually drunk, your heart is in a sleepy state. You're not eagerly anticipating the coming of Jesus. 
Odds are, if you're consistently drunk, you're not consumed with the things of God and building a life that's going to count for something on that last day. You're numbing something that makes your conscience and your will and your life numb to the things of God. So wild living is not living this life in anticipation of that day to come. Drunk living is not living this day in light of that day. He gives us a third and final one, and I would summarize it as anxious living. Anxious living. He says in verse 34, um, to not give ourselves to the cares of this life. I would call that anxious living. Let's talk about anxiety for a second, because some of you are thinking, well, I don't do wild living, and I don't do drunkenness, so I'm off the hook. Hold on, I got you. Uh, give me just a second. <clears throat> we, won't, we won't leave all the fun for the rebels in the room. Let's talk about anxious living for just a second. Uh, I wonder if you're an anxious person. Let's do a little test to just self-diagnose our own hearts. Let me just ask you some questions. Uh, are you going to have enough money to retire? Do you know how much money you need to retire? Do you have a plan to get there? If you don't already have a plan, odds are you're behind. Let me ask you another question. How are you going to care for your aging parents? Did you know that's expensive? Let me ask you another question. How are you going to get your kids through college without accumulating an insurmountable amount of personal debt that's going to cripple them for the rest of your life? Do you have a college savings account? There are tax benefits, people. Start saving now. Do you not have enough money to put your kids throughout college without it ruining their lives? What happens if one of the old guys with a funny haircut gets in the White House of this country? Either of them. Have you thought about that? That could be our reality in nine months. Think about that. One of the old dudes with a funny haircut could be our president. What's going to happen? Did you know ISIS is gaining ground, even on our own soil? Anyone anxious yet? Blood pressure elevating? No? Okay, I'll keep going. Um, did you know health insurance premiums went up 20% this last year, and forecasters say that unless something changes, premiums will go up another 20 to 30% next year, and our coverages will go down? Are you prepared for that? Do you floss your teeth daily? <laughs> I mean, really, when's the last time you flossed? Is your car due for an oil change? When's the last time you changed your furnace filter? That's a fire hazard, right? Do you ever let these thoughts consume your mind? Here's what we do. We take all of the worst possible scenarios, we create a fictional reality in our minds, and then we freak out about fiction. The dude with the bad haircut's going to be in the office, and ISIS is going to take me captive, and I'm going to be off guard and out of money, and I'm going to have cavities everywhere. <laughs> this is my 2018 reality, right? Keeps me up from sleep. We dwell on this fictional reality. And it's what the Bible calls anxiety. If you let them, they consume you, and your gaze becomes 100% on the things of this world and not to God. And here's the, here's the insidious nature of anxiety. Anxiety lived out in a person's life is often just seen as a responsible person. Well, I'm just type A. Well, I'm sorry that you're lazy, but I have a plan, right? And I have to think about these things. But oftentimes what is happening in the human heart is a desire for security apart from God. And the dangerous thing about anxious living is that unlike wild living and drunken living, anxious living is socially acceptable among Christians. Everyone talks about how Sally gets a little sloppy on the weekends, but no one talks about how Susie is a worry ward, Right? The problem is Jesus says both lead to a sleepy heart. Whether you're living wild or you're living drunk or you're living in perpetual anxiety, you are not anticipating the return of Jesus and structuring your life as though it's coming. Jesus says, man, wake up. Do not let your heart become depressed. Why? Here's what he says, uh, verses 34 at the end and 35. He says, 
that that day would come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. So what Jesus is saying is that his return and your death, whichever comes first, if you're giving yourself to wild living and drunk living and anxious living, it's going to catch up on you like a trap. You're going to be left saying, oh, oh, you're back? Crap. You mean everything I'm doing right now doesn't really amount to much? Man, if I knew you were coming today, I, I would have done everything so different. Everything I had given myself to seemed so significant at the time, and it seemed so small. Now, I've been drunk and anxious for 20 years, and none of that matters now. Don't let it hit you like a trap. So let me ask you, do you have a sleepy heart? Is your heart numb to the things of God? Um, Are you filling yourself with wild living, drunk living, or anxious living? Listen to the Word of God. Watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So Jesus starts with kind of the, the negative side of it. What are we not to do? Well, we're not to be wild, drunk, and anxious all the time. What are we to do? How do we start to live this day in light of that day? My second point I would say is this. Jesus says, keep an alert heart. Keep an alert heart. Verse 36 says this. Uh, it says, but stay awake when? At all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Let me summarize how I think Jesus tells us to have an alert heart. Number one, he says, stay awake. Stay awake at all times. Spiritually speaking, stay awake. First job I had uh, growing up when I turned 16, I was a cart boy at Woodland Hills Golf Course, uh, which is south of Lincoln. Anyone ever played Woodland Hills? Beautiful course, one of the best kept secrets, uh, none of you care. Anyway, uh, Woodland Hills is a great golf course, and it was on the south side of Lincoln, and uh, I was a cart boy, so I'd wash the carts and gas the carts and stage the carts, and, and uh, I signed a lot of autographs. It was really glamorous. Uh, a lot of people wanted to know me at the time. And, um, but the trouble is, in the summer, sun comes up really early, golfers start golfing early, and if you're going to have the carts ready, you need to be there early. And so we would start staging carts at 6 a.m. Well, I lived in Waverly, which was a half an hour to the north, and so I'd have to leave the house at 5.30 to start staging carts by 6 a.m. When you're 16 years old in the summertime, 5.30 a.m. kind of feels like death. I mean, it, on any given day, do you want to set your alarm for 5 or death. You're like, I don't know. Can I have time to think about it, right? And so, <clears throat> and you don't go to bed early when you're 16 in the summer, even though you're getting up early in the morning, because as a general rule, you just make poor life decisions at 16. That's why you're not allowed to vote or buy alcohol, as it should be. You just make a habit of poor decisions. And so I'd go to bed late, and you got an hour of sleep, and you wake up, and you're driving. 5.30 and going south, where the sun kind of rises in the southeast, And I usually did okay for the first 10 minutes because um, I was awake and whatever. But then the sun starts to come up, and then your eyes start to squint in the sun, you know? And then, like, the distance your eyelids have to travel between, like, awake and asleep are just just slits, you know? And so as the sun comes up, ironically, I'm getting more sleepy, and you start doing the thing, like, I'm just going to have a long blink. Like, I'm not going to let myself, just like a little, I'm just going to allow myself a long blink, you know? And then they're like sticking together. And you're like, Gavin, you're going 60. And they kind of come open. And you realize this is a dangerous situation. 
You've probably been there driving back from South Dakota. It's, 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 the, it's dangerous, right? And I was aware of this even at 16. So what do you do? You do whatever you, ha- whatever you can, whatever you have to do to stay awake. So my first attempt um, was always just to crank the radio. So I have my Sony Discman that goes into the tape adapter. You remember that? And it sat on like a shock absorber so that it wouldn't skip. When you, Some of you lived in the 90s. You know the drill. And so I'd have TLC in there or, you know... Hootie and the Blowfish or Matchbox 20, and I would just belt it out. Don't go chasing waterfalls. Please stick to the... And my eyes are shut, and I'm singing. So step two is max out the AC. So I'm in like my golf polo, short sleeve, khaki shorts, and I've got it down to like 50. Now I'm cold and sleeping and singing all at the same time. And kind of my last resort, I would just roll down the window and stick my head out the window. And you laugh, but I'm alive today because I did it. So if you're ever falling asleep at the wheel, stick your head out. You're going to get some bugs, but you'll live. I promise it's worth it, right? In those moments, you do whatever it takes. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, right? He's saying not only don't let your heart get sleepy, do whatever it takes to stay alive to God. Stay awake. Stay alert. I think the heart of what it means to to stay awake at all times is to let the reality and person of God stay paramount and central in your mind and in your heart and in your actions and in your lives is to keep God there. It's to stay awake to the things of God. Can I tell you a little secret? Pause those cameras. Don't tell anybody this. A lot of churches would be really mad if I, if I let the secret out of the bag. Did you know you can stop going to church on Sundays? You can stop reading your Bible. You can stop going to city group, all those things, and God will still love you if your faith is in Jesus. Did you know that? Uh, some churches have their whole, like, budget based on guilt, like, you got to get here, you know, or God's going to erase your name from the land book of life. It doesn't work like that. You don't have to be here to be a Christian. And so let me just let that go. We're Christians because Jesus saved us, not because of our church attendance. But did you also know that's the fastest way to fall asleep to the things of God? I mean, to quit meeting with the people of God, to quit getting in your car and driving and sitting in a circle even when you don't feel like it, to pray for other people and actually care what's going on in their lives and to open up the Bible and figure out what it says, to quit reading the Word of God, to quit listening to the Spirit of God, to quit caring about the mission of God is the quickest way to fall asleep. And so listen, when we planted this church, um, we intentionally said, man, we don't want 10,000 programs so that all we have is busy Christians with something to do every night of the week. But we did say, man, we want wide-awake Christians we want Christians who, who don't just see the Christian life as this mundane monotony of church and sermon and blah, 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 but whose hearts are asleep to the things of God. The reason we want people to be in the room on Sundays and in city groups is not to make us busy, but to wake us up, right? Here's what happens. Life's pressures and life's rhythms and life's stresses serve as like white noise that will lull our hearts to sleep if we let it. And so Jesus gives us an imperative, which means there's something that we are to do. And he says, stay awake at all times. Do whatever it takes. Stick your head out the stinking window if you have to. But stay awake towards the things of God, lest your heart fall asleep and miss the point and miss his second coming. Stay awake. City Light Church, I dream that we would be a church that's not busy, not hyper-religious, not weird, but that we are sincerely awake to the things of God listening to his voice, dialed in. Number one, he says, stay awake at all times. Number two, how do we do that? He says, uh, stay prayerful. Point number one, stay awake. Point number two, stay prayerful. Look at verse 36. He says, stay awake at all times, praying. 
Listen, the best way to stay aware of God, the best way to stay dialed in to God is to talk with God. Prayer is the continual, perpetual conversation between the Christian and God. It's called prayer. And prayerful living is the opposite of wild living. It's the opposite of drunk living. It's the opposite of anxious living. Rather than living wildly, prayerful living is living in communion with God, listening to His voice, getting pleasure from knowing Him, not the pleasures of this world. Um, Prayerful living is the opposite of drunk living. Rather than being filled with the effects of alcohol, we're filled with the Spirit of God, and He is the most primary and prominent thing that shapes our personality and our decision-making and the trajectory of our lives. Prayerful living is the opposite of anxious living. Instead of filling ourselves up and, and weighing ourselves down with the cares of this world, we give them to Jesus, right? Philippians says, be anxious about no thing, but in all things, by prayer and supplications, make your requests known to the Lord, and the peace of God will uh, come upon you. Let me ask you, do you worry or do you pray? Do you escape life's pressure through entertainment or alcohol, or do you pray? This is the way we stay awake. We pray. We keep the conversation with God going constantly. Uh, Now, more specifically, um, I don't think Jesus is just talking about prayer in general. Look what he says in verse 6, but stay awake at all times, whatever it takes, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus is not only talking about a disciplined prayer life, but a specific prayer. And I think he has two things in mind. Number one, I think he has in mind his immediate context, the disciples whom just a few verses before he said great calamity is going to come upon the earth. There will be wars. The temple will be torn down and you will face great and extreme excuse me, persecution. And so pray for strength for that day. And we know from history that they did and that God did give them strength to overcome. All of the disciples except for one died a martyr's death for their witness for Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, I think is one of the greatest apologetics for this book and the Christian faith that we hold to, that these men who knew for a fact whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, even in the face of torture, oftentimes beheading, upside-down crucifixion, horrific deaths, refused to recant their faith in Jesus Christ and the reality that he rose from the grave. And so we know that the Lord gave them strength, answered this prayer in that hour, but I think there's a second audience that Jesus is talking to, and that's the further mountain peak that's you and me talking about the days that are to come. He says that in those days preceding his second coming, there will be great distress on the earth. Earlier in the chapter, he says that people will be fainting with fear and foreboding. And the application for us is to pray for strength as the days on this earth to be a Christian in this culture get harder and harder that we might overcome. That even though persecution may come, that even though we may face travesty and trial and tribulation, that we would have strength to walk with God and overcome. And so we pray. Furthermore, in verse 36, he says that we may have strength to stand before the Son of Man. That phrase, Son of Man, is a, is a classic Old Testament phrase. Most specifically in Daniel 6, the phrase, the Son of Man, refers to, to Jesus's second and final and consummate coming in judgment on the earth. And he says, pray that you have strength to stand on that last day. Jesus is saying, when I come back. And I just want to ask you, are, are you ready for that day? 
In verse 33, Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain forever, which is to say the ground that you are sitting on and the air that you are breathing are less sure in concrete, pun not intended, than the second return of Jesus Christ. It is a sure thing that he is coming back, and the witness of the Bible says that he is coming back as two things. He's coming back as Savior, and he is coming back as Judge. And whether or not he is coming back to save us or to judge us is based on one fact. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? That is the only way to be prepared to stand face to face with the Son of Man. There's a later, another verse later in the New Testament, 1 Peter, and it's also talking about this last day. And it says that through faith we are shielded by God's power for that day. It says that faith in Jesus is the shield that we have on that day. Here's the way this works. Jesus is coming back as a judge for all mankind. We will all stand before the throne, and there will be a judgment. And so here's the back end of the story of why Jesus is so important. He comes to this earth. He commits no sins. Yet, on the cross, he faces not only Roman execution, but the full penal wrath of God toward sins. Why? If he had no sins, why does he face the wrath of God for sins? He does it as a substitute. For whom? Anyone who would place their faith on Jesus. And so when you place your faith on Jesus, this transaction happens. Your guilt is taken away, dealt with by Jesus on the cross. His perfect righteousness is imputed to you, given to you, so that on that last day, when you stand face to face before the Son of Man, he would look at you and say, there are no sins on you. There's no reason to declare you guilty. You are justified. You are redeemed. Come into my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faith in Jesus is our shield for that day. Have you trusted Jesus? He is your one and only sure hope on that day. If you haven't, would you just cry out to Jesus? I'm a sinner. I need a substitute. I need a shield. I have sinned and fallen short. Would you save me? Would you come into my life? He would gladly, gladly come in and do that. Now, I want to apply this to the Christian folks in the room who have already trusted Jesus in that way, because I think there's a great, great, great application for us. That's just simply this. City Light, I I want us to be a church that's fully awake. I don't want to be the busy church. I don't want to be the, oh, here's another sermon church. I want us to be a church who's listening not just to sermons and being in the room, but is dialed into God, dialed into his word, listening to his spirit, engaged in his mission that on that last day we wouldn't be caught off guard. And so church, um, I want us to be that church that's living this day and tomorrow and every day in light of that day. Let me end with a story. There was a, a preacher in the 1700s. His name was John Wesley, and he sparked an evangelistic movement that continues on to this day that, in part, we would even trace our own heritage to uh, in this movement that we've seen here. So um, John is preaching on the Lord's Day, a Sunday, and uh, he's in between sermons. He would preach a lot, and he's in the back of the room. I like to think he was eating a donut, um, as the best preachers do in between sermons. But he's in the back of the room, and a young man came up to him and said, Pastor John, how would you spend tomorrow if you knew that in the evening Jesus was coming back? And very poised and confidently, Pastor Don Wesley just took out his day planner, his calendar that he had with him, and he opened it up, and very patiently he just read to the young man every appointment that he had penned into his day planner for the next day. Uh, After which he closed it and put it back in his pocket, and he said, that's how I would spend my day if I knew that in the evening Jesus were coming back. Could we say the same thing? Would you look at your calendar and say the same thing? 
Jesus is coming back. Would we live this day and every day in light of that day? Amen? Amen. Ben, go ahead and come on up. We are going to respond to the Word of God this morning by the taking of communion. Communion really does two things. One, it remembers that first day when Jesus advented on the earth. In more particular, Jesus says that in taking communion, we remember the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was given and shed for our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And then he also says that when we take communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So we're anticipating his second coming. And so this is kind of a wake-up call, right? It's, it's a grateful um, celebration and remembrance, and it's an anticipation that just as sure as I'm eating this bread and this juice, Jesus is coming again, and I'm going to stand in victory because what he has done for me at the cross. So communion servers, uh, go ahead and come forward when you're ready. Um, we don't have ushers, so whenever you're ready, the band's going to play. You stand up. Uh, you come forward to the Lord's table anytime you're ready. This meal is for believers in God. So if you've trusted Jesus and cried out to him, you are welcome at the Lord's table. Um, if you don't know Jesus, haven't trusted him, uh, but are ready to do so, may this be your first we- uh, act of worship. Um, and if not, this isn't just like a snack, okay? This is a, this is a, a symbolic and important time. And so we would ask that you would abstain uh, unless you're ready to surrender your heart to Jesus. And so let's pray. Jesus, um, God, we are very prone to having sleepy hearts. Um, The world's busy and stressful, and we've got schedules and responsibilities and things on our calendar. Um, God, but my greatest fear is that we would just get caught up with that and think that that's the main thing and, and miss the point. God, I pray that as a church, no matter what our vocation, no matter what meets us tomorrow, no matter the first meeting that is on our day planner for tomorrow, that we would truly live that day in light of the consummate day that as we evaluate our time, talent, treasures, money, attention, the way we spend our times, what we put in our body, what we do with our body, that everything would be done in an act of worship and anticipation of the second return of Jesus. And Lord, we know you're so much better. We know that you don't just call us out of fun. You call us to a greater joy. And the greatest party is not one of drunkenness on this earth, but it's on that last day. There's going to be an amazing wedding feast. Oh God, would we be um, the bride who is preparing herself for that moment, um, that we would look to you as our greatest joy and our greatest treasure. And so, Lord, may that be so among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.